You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In that strange moment that Petrarch called the Dark Ages and Enlightenment historians called the beginning of the Middle Ages, the great city builders that once stretched their hand from the Euphrates in the east to the Atlantic in the west ran out of energy, and powerful tribes, perhaps those people who inspired legends like Beowulf, overran Europe. These warlords had little regard for the gods of the ancients and less for their books, and the rise of the monastic community under the leadership of the obscure Italian Benedict of Nursia to a great extent preserved both Christianity and literacy in Europe. More than a millennium later, philosopher Alistair MacIntyre wondered whether the West, descending into a new kind of Dark Ages, might be waiting for a new and certainly different kind of Benedict. Rod Dreher, mere decades after that, asked us whether perhaps we obscure Christians in our own places and in our own moment might be Benedict. His new book, The Benedict Option, updates McIntyre's diagnosis, offers examples of people living out the Benedict way in the 21st century, and challenges Christians in our own moment to live apart for the sake of the world to be the new kind of monastic missionaries in this post-Christian moment. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him back on the show, and thank you for coming back on the show, Rod. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, always. Before we commence the interview proper, I do want to invite you listeners to an event on March 16, 2017. Uh, Plow Magazine will be hosting Rod, along with Ross Douthat, R.R. Reno, and others, at the Union League Club on 38th. 37th Street, pardon me, at 6 o'clock in the evening in New York City. For those unable to make their way to the Big Apple in person, Plow will be live streaming the event on Facebook, and links to all of the above will appear on ChristianHumanist.org on this episode's show notes, as well as on the Facebook page as that event draws closer. But we're here to talk about a book, so let's talk about the book, shall we? I want to start with the title. Some of our readers might know of Benedict of Nursia. Uh, and by the way, you can pronounce Nursia properly for me after I get done mispronouncing it. He's a revered <laughs> early figure within the European communal monasticism. And others will likely remember the final line of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue that speculates that we might be waiting for a new but no doubt very different Benedict. So what about our moment, Rod, here in 2017, more than a millennium after the founding Benedict and almost 40 years after McIntyre's book? What about our moment makes it a suitable moment to opt for something like Benedict? Well, Nathan, you, you pronounced it correctly. It is Nursia, by the way. Uh, although today, the same town is still there in the Italian mountains, but they call it Norcia, N-O-R-C-I-A. But um, it, it's amazing when you actually go there, the continuity that remains uh, over the centuries uh, from uh, the Benedictine presence in that town. The Benedictines are still there today. And uh, you talk about a, a connection with the past and with Christian stability. It's right there in Norcia, visible to see. But to, to go to your question, uh, no less an authority than Pope Benedict XVI said that the spiritual crisis that is upon Western man is the most critical since the fall of the Roman Empire in the year 476. Alistair McIntyre agrees from a philosophical perspective. Uh, he wrote that starting with Enlightenment, the West cast aside the, the narrative that served as our, our common ground for settling moral questions and disputes. Now, we lost a common Christianity, that's true, but McIntyre's point is more fundamental than that. He said that we lost the belief that human beings are ordered towards something or to some goal outside of themselves. And without that shared belief, there's no clear way to settle our differences. The, the Enlightenment severed the, the, the authoritative connection with Christianity and tradition and tried to replace it with pure reason, but it couldn't do that. I mean, that attempt failed, and that's the point of McIntyre's book. He says that we've been coasting for a long time on the residual uh, Christianity in the West, but those days are over. Mm -hmm. McIntyre himself, just like the Pope, compared our era to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. What he meant as a philosopher was that the core of, of our great civilization has decayed to the point where the civilization is in collapse. But in our case today, unlike Rome in the 6th century, our advanced technology and our material wealth 
conceals the uh, fundamental moral decay underneath. McIntyre compared us to barbarians, which always strikes people as weird, because when we think of barbarians, we think of wild men wearing animal skins who rampage through cities, destroying things just because they can. They have no sense of anything higher than their own will. McIntyre says that this is how we are today. The autonomous individual knows no law but his own desire, and we're destroying the things that make our civilization possible, all for the sake of liberating the individual will. That's pretty bleak, so where's the hope? McIntyre was not a Christian when he wrote After Virtue, though he later converted. In the book, though, he, he says that in the wake of Rome's collapse, men and women of virtue who lived in Rome quit trying to shore up the imperial order and instead focused on creating small communities within which the virtues tradition could be lived out amid the darkness and chaos of the post-Roman time. So Benedict of Nursia, who, as you said, was the founder of Western monasticism, he did just this. McIntyre says that today we await a new and doubtless very different St. Benedict. Now, what he means is that in our time, our hope resides in the emergence of visionary men and women, even, who are willing to live countercultural lives in community and to embody the, the virtues tradition. Well, as a Christian, I look for that hope in disciplined Christian living, in Christian community. So what I call the Benedict option is the choice facing all of us faithful Christians in the post-Christian era. Do we keep trying to live as we've been doing and hope for the best? Or do we quit trying to shore up the imperial order, so to speak, and put our focus on building local communities of faith, communities that stand as... I guess you could call it a sign of contradiction to this faithless age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one passage of that book that I mean is especially telling, and I mean I, I point it up to my students when I teach it because I teach a, a philosophy course in the summer that uses that book is uh, his critique of protest culture, uh, which you know in 1981 when he's writing it, no doubt he has the anti-war protests and so on and so forth in mind. But uh, in the last few years, as <clears throat> protests have become more and more intertwined with social media i mean his critique of protest as an inherently um anti-deliberative mode of persuasion uh is just so telling oh sure and, and you can see it every single day in, in our news where people feel uh, feel that their feeling their emotion is, mm. is self-validating so if they feel offended by something then they have been offended and you have harmed them and, and on we go. And we live in a this sort of perpetual sense of outrage. But this sort of thing can also plays out in, uh, in other ways that don't have to do necessarily with conflict. As you know, and after Virtue, McIntyre said that our, we are ruled today by what he calls emotivism, which is mm -hmm. the idea that our feelings are, are, are the guide or guide to truth or the only thing that's really true. Um, McIntyre didn't endorse that, but he said that's how we live. Well, just um, recently, I was at a Christian college giving a lecture and, about the Benedict Option, and at the end uh, uh, of my lecture, in the Q&A period, a young woman stood up at the back, an undergraduate, and said, so I hear you talking about this Benedict Option and the need for discipleship and more intentional living, but I really don't understand wh why we need to do that. I mean, what's wrong with just loving Jesus with all our hearts, and, like I was taught growing up? And hers was a really naive question, but a very sincere one, and I want to take it seriously. And what I, what I told her was that that love itself has to have some expression, has to have some form, mm -hmm. or it is nothing more than sentimentality. And that's the way that we end up with, with people mistaking uh, niceness for holiness. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, before emotivism, of course, there was nominalism, uh, and this is a, a feature of the 14th century that you really point up. You talk a bit about William of Ockham. Um, I'm interested, uh, did you intentionally leave Richard Weaver out of this when you said ideas have consequences? I, I, I read that, and I immediately I turned back to the index, and I said, okay, where's Richard Weaver? Did, did, oh, yeah. Did, did he get no. left out intentionally, or what? <laughs> No, he didn't. He got left out in like the many edits of this book I had to ah, do. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, because re reading Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences when I was in college was, for me, a landmark moment in my own conversion uh, to Christianity and my own uh, 
journey towards traditional conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and Weaver, uh, of course, that was the title of his book, Ideas Have Consequences, and he talks about nominalism. Yes, he does. He, <laughs> what's that? I said, yes, he does. Oh, yeah, as, that's the turning point in, in the decline of the West, he said. And, and what he meant, I mean, it's a complicated idea, but as I understand it, Prior to William of Ockham, who was a 14th century Franciscan friar, Western metaphysics, including Christian metaphysics, was platonic. I mean, it held that the, you know, the visible world existed in relationship with a transcendent invisible order that was in some sense inextricably related to it. And please correct me here, Nathan, if I'm getting something wrong. Uh, so for Christians, obviously, this was God. Christians believed mm-hmm. that the Logos was woven into the fabric of creation itself, as we in the Eastern Orthodox Church pray, God was everywhere present and filled all things, and we still believe he does. Well, Occam reacted strongly and understandably, I think, to what he saw was the overly rationalistic, scholarly Christianity of Thomas Aquinas in the high Middle Ages. He was trying to reclaim some space for God's sovereignty, because I, I, I believe that he saw the, the God of the scholastics as being overly uh, determined, overly mm-hmm. determinative. Um, so, but what he ended up doing was to claim space for God's sovereignty. He denied that platonic dimension of reality uh, in this sense. He, he taught that the visible universe had no intrinsic meaning aside from that which God gave to it from the outside. Well, you know, I, I try to tell people about this, and it sounds like angels dancing on the head of a pen stuff, <laughs> but Richard Weaver got it. He said, ideas have consequences. This idea, nominalism, which means that the meaning of things depends on what we choose to call them, had a very profound impact over the centuries that followed. Because what uh, Charles Taylor calls the disenchantment of the world, that is, Western man slowly began to lose the sense that the material world is charged with the presence of God. The material world became simply stuff that we're free to fashion however we please according to our own desires. This wasn't entirely a bad thing, you know. It, it made possible the scientific revolution and everything to follow. The problem is we don't really know where to stop, and we still don't know where to stop from that. Early in the scientific revolution, Western man began to think of nature as something to be conquered and whipped into submission by the application of science. Mm-hmm. If there are no inherent limits in nature, then there's only what we, what we know how to do and what we don't know how to do. But these are problems that can be solved. And I don't know if you've heard of this new book called Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. No, I have not. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just published. I can't wait to get my hands on it. I heard an interview with him the other day. He's a historian. But he says, this is the name of his book, Homo Deus, the God-man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he means by that that we're at the point in the history of mankind where man is unbound by anything other than his own will. Uh, and, and so we, we assume God-like powers, which should be pretty terrifying to to the rest of us, to we who are Christians or anybody who knows anything about human nature and how mankind has used that kind of godlike power in history. Um, it's not fair to blame William of Ockham for all of this, but I think Richard Weaver's right that this is where the desacralization of the world had its genesis. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, if St. Benedict's mustard seed of faith in the uh, 6th century helped to build Western, Western Christendom over time, then William of Ockham's mustard seed of nominalism helped to undo it all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, people who have listened to the Christian humanists at all have heard me talk about how you can see uh, Ockham's influence in Martin Luther and John Calvin, and you know, later on in, you know, people like Francis Bacon. I mean, who <clears throat> uses almost exactly the phrase that you just used, Rod, that nature yeah. is to be whipped into shape and to be, you know, beaten until it does our will. And yeah, I mean, you know, that, that is, uh, I, I think you're basically right. I mean, you know, the fruit of nominalism, the fruit of this idea that it's not ultimately a, an eternal divine love that orders things, but it is an, a radically free divine will that is primary. Uh, and it, it, again, it's just fascinating to see, uh, 20th century thinkers, and now, of course, you know, here we are talking in the 21st, looking back to that 14th century as a time when these very, very important changes happen. And you know what's interesting, too, I learned in my research, I read a, a book called Heavenly Participation by the contemporary Reformed theologian 
Hans Borsma, mm-hmm. and he talks in that, in that book about how every major idea that led to the Reformation, uh, the intellectual preparation and theological preparation, was already in place by the late Renaissance in the Roman Catholic Church. So, uh, you know, nominalism came out of the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and it laid the it did lay the groundwork for the Reformation, but this this didn't you know jump out of Luther's head unbidden, and it didn't simply come out of reaction to the corruption in the Roman Church. The theological mm. groundwork and philosophical groundwork came out of nominalism. Right, right. Well, at any rate, if we spent this long on every century between 14 and 21, we'd be here till the evening. So I'll not make you walk through the whole five landmark history, but I will say that our, our listeners should find its contours familiar when you go out and buy the book, which you should, if you've listened to The Christian Humanist or read some Richard Weaver or some C.S. Lewis. I am interested in the turn your tale takes in the 20th century with the sexual revolution, because you narrate it in an interesting way as largely a technological revolution that, you know, whether by will or by accident, sort of puts the last nail in Christendom. So, I mean, what technologies are there at the sexual revolution that spells the end of whatever came for the... 13 centuries before. Right. Right. Well, um, I think we have to say at the outset that people like me, we love to think about ideas having consequences, but Mm -hmm. it's also true that technology has consequences. Uh, The fact that I am sitting here in, in my home state of Louisiana talking to you now is something that could only have happened because of technology, because of the Internet, which mm-hmm. freed me as a writer to live wherever I wanted to live and not be bound to an office. So for me, that's a beneficial consequence. But there are all technology is not a neutral thing. There are all kinds of consequences that come from it. And uh, in the 20th century, the invention of the birth control pill in the early 1960s was a tremendous uh, tectonic shift because it separated sex from reproduction for the first time in human history. Um, if we can regulate our fertility and, and put off childbearing, then we were freed to you know, have sex whenever and however we like. Uh, this didn't happen in a vacuum, of course. The, the 20th century, since the, you know, with the two world wars and the rise of Freudianism, had come to think of the human person in terms of its therapeutic needs. Uh, and, it, and it's psychology. So uh, Freud, of course, theorized that uh, sexual desire was at the core of the human person and uh, that you know, freeing up the libido to express itself would lead to less, uh, less anxiety and a more peaceful society. Well, the pill made that happen, and we got the, the divorce revolution right after that. Um, I think it's also the case that mass media uh, played a tremendous role in this in the 20th century. It, it shaped our imaginations, uh, and it did so towards eros and towards satisfying all desires, not just sexual desire, but all desire. The hero of our movies became the, the individual who was liberated from inherited tradition and all the all that that held him back from realizing his true self. And so now, and closer to our own year, our own time, the invention of the Internet made it possible for uh, pornography, hardcore pornography, to be streamed into every home, into the hands of everyone who has a computer or a smartphone connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I still don't think that we have even begun to contemplate the social and the neurological uh, effect of this um, of this revolution. Um, and it's it's just been tremendous. But these are all things that have reduced the individual person to nothing more than a collection of his or her own desires. And uh, I'm overstating it a little bit there, but this is where Alison McIntyre comes in and says that this is who we become in the 20th century. We become feeling creatures, and we don't know how to order our desires or whether to even tell ourselves no to anything. I think that you know, with, when you lose the family too, you you lose the the key thing that transmits Christianity. Our family, the, the family today, has been deconstructed. It's falling apart in many places because of the sexual revolution. And uh, so I think that 
you know, the reason that we're seeing the faith fall away so much is not because of the triumph of science, as a lot of secular triumphalists would have you think, but uh, because the the center of, of Christian faith uh, had sociologically to do with the uh, subordination of desire, especially sexual desire, to the will of God. And we become more and more homo deus, godlike, the more our technology gives us power over our own desires and to satisfy our own desires. So we shouldn't be that surprised when the faith uh, falls away. Mm-hmm. Let me propose one more uh, technology that gave us a sexual revolution. I think Henry Ford might have had something to do with it. Because yeah. all of a sudden, <laughs> you could get away from your family at the speed of an automobile, and you didn't have to have the expertise to you know, hitch up a horse-drawn carriage or something like that. It was pretty much instantaneous distance uh, in the same way that the Internet is instantaneous access. I mean, do you think that oh, that had something to do with it? Oh, you're right about that, no, no question about it. And, and beyond that specifically, the, the car gave us the mobile society, and mm-hmm. it, um, it, it brought us, made, made it easier for us to live farther away from each other and from close communities. And it, um, this was not necessarily a bad thing that it gave people more mobility, but as it gave them mobility, this played right into the, the, the movement of society towards fragmentation and individualism and atomization. Mm-hmm. So um, our cars, by, by making the suburbs possible, also contributed to fragmentation, and that, and that plays out in all areas of life, including the life of the family and the, life of, um, the, and the, the sex lives of people today. Mm-hmm. Well, despite this seven-century history that starts with theology and, you know, kind of culminates with technology, this book remains joyfully confident in the church. And you demonstrate this confidence with one of my favorite stories in the book, and I want you to open up to page 49 and tell our listeners the Napoleon story. I, I still want you to buy the book, listeners, but I want you to hear this one. I really do. Well, well I, I don't have a copy of my book in front oh, of me. Oh, no! I do, no, I do remember the story. Oh, um, good. <laughs> Napoleon uh, ran uh, rampant, roughshod all over Europe in the uh, 19th century, early 19th century. <clears throat> and he was a, a big uh, opponent of the church. And he was trying to bully some cardinals and to force them to do what he wanted to do, the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the cardinals said to him, my general, if we have not been able to destroy the church in 1,800 years, it makes you think that you can succeed. <laughs> uh, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in that, that, you know, that it is also often said that one sign of the church's divine origin is the fact that uh, its people and its bishops and its priests and its people have not been able to destroy it. Um, and I, I think that you know, there, there is, Christ promised us that he would be with, the, with his people to the end of the age. And he also said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Mm-hmm. I think that we can take confidence in that, but it's also something we have to remember is he did say that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church in the West. Right. Uh, we can lose our faith if we, if we aren't careful, and in fact that's happening. It's happened almost entirely in Europe, and uh, it's starting to happen with increasing rapidity here. Mm-hmm. The church is not just America and Europe and Canada. The church is... Uh, the Global South, the Church is China, the Church is Russia. Um, if those people are, have their hearts and minds open to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will go there. If we don't want the Holy Spirit here, then He will leave us, and we will see churches uh, begin to dwindle and die. In fact, we can look at the statistics and see that this is actually happening. So, I don't try to, I don't want Christians to despair and to think all is lost because all is not lost. But I do hope Christians will read this book and look at the statistics I talk about in the book about the falling away of people from the faith, especially millennials, and realize that this thing, this this precious treasure we've been handed uh, in the Christian faith, it is something that we have to be good stewards of because it it's not just going to sit there and be there forever. If we don't tender it in our own hearts and in our own families and in our own communities, it's not going to be there for our children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And part of that survival of the church, I mean, has got to do with the continuous community of the faith. 
Um, I mean, again, a, a theme that sounds over and over in this book is that if we are going to receive this gift that is the faith, we can't receive it in its fullness as atomized individuals, but we have to receive it as a community. So what makes community so important to this enterprise and what makes it so countercultural in our moment? Yeah, well, that's that's an enormous question, and it's one that I, the older I get and the more I, I, you know, I raise my own children, the more I recognize how critically important community is in ways that I didn't quite understand when I was a, a younger Christian. I can remember in my own conversion, I, I converted, I became a Christian as an adult, as a Roman Catholic in my mid-20s. I was very intellectual, and I thought that you know, I, I, I wanted to go to church and get a good intellectually satisfying sermon, but I didn't get that. Um, but I would leave as soon as the services were over. I would have my communion, and I was actually very, very Protestant and individualistic without realizing what I was doing. And, and the Catholic Church, I must say, today uh, makes it easier to be this sort of Protestant, I mean, this sort of Catholic, <laughs> you know, just to think of yourself as just, just me and Jesus and the Eucharist, uh, and, and throw the Bible in if you want to. Um, well, that is not going to hold together. I, I, the older I've gotten, the more I've seen that I need other people not only to hold me accountable uh, to, to the faith, but also to draw me out of myself and out of my own bubble. Um, you know, we, we, the, the, we're supposed to live and to model the love of the Holy Trinity, which is self-giving. We know ourselves most intimately and, and our, achieve our humanity in giving ourselves completely to others. That's not what, you, what happens when it's just you sitting there with you and the Bible and, uh, and missing that complete horizontal uh, dimension of the faith. Plus, at a more basic sociological level, we learn who we are and what we are to do from mimicking other people. I've been reading Rene Girard lately and have uh, discovered him, the great cultural anthropologist, and he talks about uh, how critically important community is to, uh, to the discovery of humanity and to maintaining our own humanity. Uh, we mimic other people, and uh, if we have other people who are, are good and holy Christians uh, who, to, to be heroes for us, then we will model our lives after them. The greatest hero, of course, being our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Alistair McIntyre has said that if you you will not know who you are if you do not know what story you are a part of. Mm -hmm. Well, as a Christian, I am part of the story of the Hebrew people through the Hebrew Bible. I am part of the story of Jesus Christ here on earth, as told in the Gospels. I am part of St. Paul's uh, missionary journeys. Uh, I am part of the early church, and on and on and on for the last 2,000 years. I have to take my own part in that story, and my part of the story uh, depends on what happened in the past. We are part of the communion of saints. We're not individual saints. We are part of the communion of saints. When I go into my Orthodox church on, on Sunday to worship, I see icons all over the walls as a reminder to me that when I stand uh, in services, I have the great cloud of witnesses around me praying with me to Almighty God at all, at all times. So I think that if we take seriously our theology of communion and our theology of, uh, of what the Church is, our ecclesiology, and, and the fact that the Church exists uh, throughout time, uh, then we will change the way we live. And this is a fantastic and necessary antidote to the alienating extreme individualism that is the counterfeit gospel of the world today. Very good. When we gather, at least part of what we do is we worship. And you make the good point in this book, and again, this is one that should ring familiar to our network's listeners, that worship is about formation before it's ever about expression. So what problems arise with the sort of rock concert worship that so many of our listeners are probably familiar with and how do ancient liturgy and contemporary song services relate differently to the bodies of the faithful and the body of the Lord? Well, a lot of people say it's not about nothing more than aesthetics, you know, that when you happen to like your smells and bells and chants, but we like the rock concert uh, uh, model. 
I think that's really deeply selling it short, selling our worship short. Uh, worship is what we do. Worship forms us. And if we are, allow ourselves to be formed by a form of um, Sunday morning praise that is uh, nothing but expressive, that we don't, if we deny that worship is, is supposed to be there to form our own souls and our own hearts, then we're missing the point. We began to think that Christianity itself is about nothing more than self-expression and about what I feel towards Jesus. Um, the liturgy is something different. The, the liturgy is ancient, depending on the liturgy you use, but in, in, my, in my church, we use a liturgy that was in its current form more or less by the eighth century, and it connects you across time to uh, Christians uh, throughout throughout history, other Orthodox Christians, and around the world on that Sunday when you're worshiping. But it, it also has a tremendously formative effect. In our liturgy, for example, we uh, we do the same thing every Sunday. The, the liturgy itself. Uh, mimics a pilgrimage outside of yourself through the Word of God in the early part of the services, the Liturgy of the Word, it's called, where they read Scripture, and then towards the, the Liturgy of the Eucharist, towards full communion with God. This is a journey that is reenacted every time we go to church, uh, and it is powerful because it lets us know, without even realizing what's happening necessarily, it, it fills you with a sense of the sacred and a sense that your Christian journey is not just a therapeutic um, walk with the Lord, just you and Jesus go into a place where you feel better about yourself, but it is a calling outside of yourself towards a certain goal, towards an end goal of unity with God and, and holiness. And you can walk, you walk in, the, in the, the pathways of the saints before you who have also been formed by the same liturgy. And that is something just tremendously powerful in our time today. And I, I have to tell you, and you see this in the, in the book, that I discovered the work of this uh, cultural anthropologist at Cambridge University, a guy named Paul Connerton. Mm -hmm. I think he's a, a Marxist, frankly, but he wrote a book called How Societies Remember. And in the book, he talks about how modern times, is modern times are defined by the absence of memory, by the deliberate cutting off of cultural memory to free the individual up to make of the world whatever he or she wants to. But uh, Connerton goes back to look at different cultures or societies that have come through the modern times more or less intact, holding on to the, the narrative that gave the pre-modern narrative story that gave them shape. And he wanted to know what aspects of those, those societies of their culture allowed them to do this. And he found that there are several things they have in common. First of all, they share a common story, and that story is sacred. And they tell that story, that sacred story, in ritual. The ritual has to be situated in some sense outside of time. In other words, when people go participate in this ritual, they have to feel that in some mystical sense they are entering eternity. The story has to be told the same way over and over again, and the telling of that story has to involve the body, because Connerton found that, uh, he said that if you use the body in worship, in the telling of the story through worship, the story itself gets sedimented into our bones. But when I read that, a Marxist uh, sociologist talking about um, about how we hold on to our story uh, in the, the the scattering of modernity, I said, this is the liturgy. This is liturgical mm -hmm. worship right here. And um, I think that this is something that Christians today, all Christians, need to rediscover. And even those of us who come from liturgical traditions, like the Catholic and the Orthodox, my church Anglicans and other, others, need to realize that this is not just empty ritualism, that this ritual, if received in the right way, points us to Christ, and nothing but Christ. It cannot be an end in itself, the ritual, or it becomes dead formalism, but when it is alive and, and, and taken as pointing us to Christ, there's absolutely nothing like it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't read this in a Hauerwas book, but I feel like I could have. But, uh, you know, just as a thought experiment, I mean, could you even imagine a public school saying, okay, you know, this week when we put our hands on our hearts, 
we're going to try out some new words instead of the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, that would be unthinkable. Uh, and yet, you know, in church, you know, if we don't do novelty every month, then we somehow, and, and by we, I mean we evangelicals, obviously, you Orthodox have your heads on better. Uh, but, you know, uh, well, at, at, I, I at, may tell you. Go ahead, right. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, a few years ago, I went to a United Methodist Church. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter was being confirmed, and uh, they came out to say the the Apostles' Creed. You know, I grew up Methodist, and we said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, they came they came out to say the Apostles' Creed, and the, the the leader who was preparing the kids for confirmation said, "This year, we decided to do something different. We wrote our own creed." Oh. These kids stood up there, yeah, and and I remember the, the, the line that maybe just put my head down on the pew was, we believe God loves us to infinity and beyond. <laughs> you know, I thought to myself, these kids are being taught, first of all, they're not being taught what the apostolic faith teaches and what has been handed down to them from generations and generations of Christians, but also they're being taught that the faith is something incredibly trite, that the faith is about self-expression. I thought for a second that this must be the uh, tremendous error of that particular leader, but don't you know I went back and did some research and found that the National Methodist Church sent out that proposal, that suggestion, as part of its national program for preparing kids for confirmation that year. Wow. I mean, it's, it's just breathtaking. It's almost as if they, they, they want people to lose their faith. They're trying so hard to conform to the world that the kids are learning that there's really no point to being a Christian. Right, right. Well, I do want our listeners to know that, I mean, in this McIntyrean Benedict world, there is a place for art, and, I mean, you make a great case for the genuinely evangelistic character of art, uh, but perhaps not in the way that our listeners are, are accustomed to hearing about. So, Rod, when we do art as, as God intends... What kind of invitation is a great symphony or a sculpture or a watercolor or a cathedral to those who behold? Oh, thank you for that question, because you make me think about my own conversion as an adult to Christianity. I, I was raised in a tradition uh, that you know, we didn't really care that much about art. It, wasn't, uh, it was considered extraneous to the faith. Mm-hmm. And when I got to be a, a teenager, I threw my faith away, and I thought I was smarter than all that crazy Christianity. And then when I was 17, my mom won a trip to Europe, uh, and she sent me. She didn't want to go. She wanted to have a church <laughs> raffle. And, and me, you know, I was full of Hemingway, and I couldn't wait to get to Paris and see the art museums and uh, all the places where Hemingway and the Lost Generation were. But the bus I was on, uh, the tour bus stopped at a church outside of Paris, about an hour outside of Paris on our way there. And I was so frustrated. I said, cannot believe we have to waste an hour or more at this old church. But I walked into it anyway, and it completely changed my life. This was the uh, Chartres Cathedral, one mm-hmm. of the, the great treasures of Western civilization, a, me- a medieval cathedral. When I walked in there, Nathan, I was overwhelmed by the presence of God in the, those stones and that stained glass. They were put together, they were woven together in such a way that made me realize below the level of consciousness that I was in the presence of God Almighty. I was in the presence of something greater than myself, and I trembled. I did not walk out of that church a Christian, but I walked out of there knowing there is something outside of myself. There is a great mystery, and I want to know it. I want to exist in relationship to it. And six long and winding years later, I, I, entered, I, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. And it all started right there with that, that, that experience of overwhelming awe in that cathedral. Now, I think that in our time, Pope Benedict himself has said that the best arguments for the Christian faith are not propositional arguments, because we happen to live in a world where people are turned off at that. They don't want to hear that. The best arguments are the art the Church produces mm-hmm. and the saints it produces. In other words the beauty that comes out of Christian worship and Christian life and Christian culture, and in terms of the saints, the goodness, the holiness that we see embodied in the lives of, of followers of Jesus. I think that if we, when we encounter beauty, uh, awe-inspiring beauty that really it does lead us to God, 
that is a doorway through which we can walk to the truth of Christ. Similarly with goodness, when we see the, uh, the beauty of, of uh, someone's life who is living self-sacrificially for Christ and for neighbor, uh, that too is a doorway through which we can come to know the truth that is Jesus Christ. So it's all bound up together. Um, and I, I think that we were, we were very neglectful and shamefully neglectful when we neglect aesthetic beauty as a manifestation of, of God's presence. Because as, as the Benedictines teach, uh, all work with our hands, all work, the work of human creation is a participation, if rightly ordered, is a participation in the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we create something beautiful, uh, we are, it's truly beautiful, we are participating in God's creative work and unifying our own uh, creative capacities to, to God's infinitely creating capacities. It sounds a little bit uh, airy-fairy, maybe, but I tell you, when you hear uh, a choral work by Bach, or you go see a great cathedral, um, you are aware that God is present and fills all things, and He wants us to be united to Him. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it doesn't sound all that airy-fairy to me, mainly because... In my readings around in, you know, sort of post-Nietzschean philosophy, I mean, the the incommensurability, to use a, a 20th century word, of rational accounts of the world, I mean, is something that has to be reckoned with. Uh, and it really is, I mean, in that, uh, you know, the, the word I tend to use is invitation of art and of narrative and of beauty, like you were talking about, uh, that really does have that promise to bring someone into a community of discourse when they didn't have any propositional reason to do so. Uh, right. and that's, and, you know, you, go ahead, go ahead. No, you and I talked uh, earlier about uh, my experience with reading the divine comedy of Dante Alighieri. And mm -hmm. I, I read it at a period of the most intense spiritual crisis I've ever known. And it, became, it was a physical crisis. I was really sick unto death. God, could not reach me with propositions. I had all the arguments clear in my head. God reached out to me in his mercy with this long poem from the high Middle Ages about mm -hmm. a man who was lost and found himself in God by returning to God. And the beauty of that poem and the story that Dante tells in that poem led me to a deeper knowledge of myself, to deeper repentance, and ultimately to a deeper sense of communion with with the Lord. And uh, I think since you and I talked uh, about that, my uh, my father, who was, it was a conflict between me, was within me, had to do with my relationship with my dad. Uh, my dad and I reconciled, and I was mm -hmm. able to spend the last eight days of his life uh, uh, ministering to him, nursing him at home, in home hospice in his bedroom, and praying with him and over him. And I held his hand when he died, and I gave God glory that day because the day that I feared more than anything else in my life, the death of my father, it came as a blessing. It came as a sign of God's abundant grace, and uh, it was a total gift. And it came to me, Nathan, through Dante. Mm -hmm. God used that art to reach out to me and call me to himself. This can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. And listeners, if you haven't heard that talk that Rod and I had, uh, I encourage you to go back a few dozen episodes, uh, take a listen, because that was a, a really good conversation as well. Well, Rod, um, I'm going to set my cards on the table here, uh, and cards that our, our network's listeners no doubt know that I'm holding because they've heard me interview people about public schools. Uh, today, you either have the good fortune or the bad luck, I haven't decided which, of talking with our podcast network's most vocal proponent of public schools about a book that calls stridently, I would say, for a withdrawal from public schools. So I'm going to let you take the lead here. Talk a little bit about why this is such a central point in your call. Well, I, I say this as a product of public schools, and my, my sainted sister was a public school teacher, so... I have nothing against public schools per se, but I think the greatest problem facing us today is the public in this sense. We have lost a sense of the common good, uh, and you can see this in the way 
kids uh, behave in, in public schools, and also I have to say in some private schools, Christian schools. And here's mm. what I mean specifically. Um, when we moved back to my hometown in Louisiana, which is Mayberry, uh, it's got one of the best school, public school systems in the whole state. Uh, a lot of people move from all over the state to put their kids at school there. But we were homeschoolers, my wife and I, moving from Philadelphia, and we sought out other homeschoolers in town to find out why they were homeschooling. Um, we found this one Christian couple, and uh, we said, why don't you take your kids out of the public school? This is one of the best schools in the state. And they said the day that our fifth-grade son came home from school saying, Mom, Dad, my, my friends at school are watching hardcore porn on their smartphones, mm. that was when this couple decided to take their kids out. Now, they weren't, the kids weren't doing this at school itself. Let me make that clear. The school wouldn't let them have smartphones at school. But they were letting the, but the kids' parents were letting them do this, and these boys from the, the, were going to be acculturated by uh, a public school culture that, uh, where pornography was normal. Now, mm. I have to say, I've seen the same thing in some Christian schools. So this is yes. Christian schools are not a panacea <laughs> for this. Okay, I'm glad all. you said that. No, no, not absolutely not at all. And in fact, somebody wrote me on my blog recently to say uh, a kid who goes to a Christian school who's a senior and said, look, I'm really worried about how so many of the boys at this school are into white nationalism and Milo Yiannopoulos and all this, and they're getting all this from the, from the Internet, and their parents think that they're just sending them to Christian school. Oh, they've taken care of the problem. They're not in public school. No, you have not taken care of the problem. Um, beyond the, the culture, of the, the public culture being really degraded in many ways, there's also the matter of what is education for. Um, I, in, in the classical Christian school that my kids go to, it's sort of a hybrid thing between homeschooling and, and classroom education, classroom instruction. Uh, the, the whole approach to, the, to schooling is that this is not just about giving you information in your head that will help you get a good job and pursue your vocational desires. It's more about the formation of the soul. And as part of that, the kids are, are taught deeply in the Western classics. I mean, I have my, my 10-year-old is reading, do some elementary reading in Socrates right now, because that's what the school is doing at an age-appropriate level. So um, I, I think that the whole approach to education is far less utilitarian and more focused on the formation of the whole person. I, I think this is something that you just don't get in the public school now. Maybe you, you used to get it in ages past, but we are, um, you just, the public schools don't exist for that sort of thing anymore. Finally, I'll say that from my, my teacher friends who teach in public schools, they're strong believers in public schools, but they say that they are so tired of, be, of the society dumping responsibility for raising kids onto their shoulders. Mm -hmm. They feel that, that teachers are having to bear the, uh, the whole burden of kids whose families have failed them. And um, that is a terrible thing for kids to have to, for, for teachers to have to bear but it also gets in the way of, of educating them. Now, having said all this, and I'm a believer in classical Christian education, I think it is the Church's great responsibility to figure out how to expand this model to the poor and to the working classes, to those who don't have the money or the freedom normally to partake of it. I, I think that classical Christian education will never reach its, uh, its fulfillment until and unless it is available to far more people than it is today, than privileged middle-class people who have the money to pay for it and who have a, a mom at home who can do the homeschooling. Mm -hmm. Well, and, I, and I'll go ahead and jump to that objection then. I was going to kind of end with it, but, I mean, since you've brought it up already, you know, one of the things that you grant in the book, and I, I give you credit for that, is that there are families, uh, even in, you know, the United States, the wealthiest nation in the world, that simply don't have the resources either because of broken families or because of low incomes or whatever else to have one parent at home or to pay the tuition for private schools or to, you know, lay down the venture capital to start their own classical Christian academies. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem that I can see people raising, and honestly it occurred to me while I was reading the book is that, this is a Benedict option that exists for rich people, but for, you know, most of the rural and urban poor, it simply isn't on the table. So, I mean, as you imagine how this expands into those populations, how can the rural and urban poor 
avail themselves of this option? Well, the, the Benedict option is not only about education. As you know mm-hmm. from the book, there's chapters on how this plays out in various aspects of our lives, in our politics, or our church life, mm-hmm. to um, technology and, and work and so on. Education is only one facet of it. Uh, for Christian kids who do go to the public school or maybe go to a Christian school that doesn't take the faith all that seriously, um, we still need to do this. We still need to be formed uh, as Christians. That simply means uh, a much greater engagement uh, by the local churches mm-hmm. in the formation of the kids to give them what they don't necessarily get at school. Um, I, I was talking to this one high school kid who uh, was telling me, this is part of my research, I don't, think, I don't know if this is in the book or not, to be honest, but um, the kid was going to a public school in another town, uh, a much more liberal town, and uh, she said that she was the only Christian, uh, she and her, maybe three or four other Christians in the school, and there was, were a lot of transgenders in the school, and she felt really besieged in her Christianity. And I said, well, do you want, why don't you go back to your old school, which was in a rural town, which was more culturally Christian, and she said, that's not for me, because back home at my old school, all my friends from Young Life are, are smoking and drinking and having sex with each other and still going to Young Life. She no. said, at least here at this new school, I might be one of the only uh, Christians in the school, but I know what being a Christian is. Oh, so, they... <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is a real story. And, uh, uh-huh. and I think... I, I hear this uh, when I was telling that story to some Christian uh, professors at a college I was at recently, and they say that the whole youth group culture is the bane of true Christian formation because they make Christ- they tend to make Christianity about having fun, and uh, and it's it, this it, when kids need something much deeper than that, and it, it could all, almost serve as a vaccination against taking the faith seriously. Uh, as opposed to being a gateway into a more serious practice of the Christian faith. So for kids who go to public school, um, like all, all my nieces do, for example, and a lot of friends of mine's kids, um, that's fine, but they need to have that much more formation outside the school, either in the family or in the church, or ideally in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting. I uh, and, and I'll preface this by saying that uh, Chris Maxwell, who is our campus minister here at Emmanuel College, is a a very much a thinking man, a reading man. He's a writer, uh, so I mean he is in this battle with us. But uh, that's that's something that definitely at our little evangelical college is a mentality we have to go to battle against. And in fact, just today in class, uh, you know, we were it, it was a freshman writing class, and you know, uh, we were doing some fairly structured reasoning exercises. And a student said, you know, I just don't feel like I need to do this stuff. And I said, well, yeah, you do. And I kind of offered some professional reasons and some citizenship reasons. And I kind of, you know, crescendoed into, and when you are, you know, dealing with, you know, your faith, you need to be able to think through it. And she said, "Uh, well, you know, I don't really need to think through it. I just feel it. And uh, yeah, you have a much more rigorous argument in this book than I could muster, uh, you know, extemporaneously. I said, well, people feel a lot of stuff when they're hallucinating. It doesn't make it real. And, I, <laughs> and afterwards, I felt bad about that. But I mean, it's 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 true. I mean, you know, uh, that this is something where uh, even at you know my little Christian college, this is where I was eventually going with this. Um, there's a sense that you know the faith is something that has to do with sentimentality, and that reasoning, if it ever comes into your life, it's exclusively a professional specialized thing rather than being a citizen or a parishioner. Uh, so, I mean, I, 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 so, you know, Rod, I, I, I guess I'll have to, you know, uh, extend a hand to you and say, all right, you know, I'm, I'm still a proponent of public schools. I, I hear that there are a lot of people in your life are as well, but I will agree with you that that formation to live as aliens in that context, I mean, is definitely before us. Yeah, a friend of mine here in Baton Rouge, who's a pastor, told me that one of his uh, parishioners came to him and said, uh, Pastor, I need your help. My uh, seventh-grade daughter has come home from public school and said that uh, she's a boy. And I went to the school to talk to the guidance counselor to see what's going on with my kid, and the guidance counselor, counselor said, you need to be more tolerant and help your son out. Can you help me, Pastor? 
And uh, the pastor was telling me that this is, even here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is not exactly liberal, coastal, um, blue America, um, a lot of the, the, the public schools are part of this, have accepted this transgender ideology and are working against parents in, in some cases. And I don't want to give a blanket indictment of all public schools, but we, we're feeling this right here locally about how the difficulty Christian parents are having with this sort of thing in, in the schools, because this is in the popular culture. I talked to some evangelical friends um, just the other day who, uh, who live in another city in, in Texas, and were saying that um, they have their kids in a classical Christian school, but all their neighbors' kids go to public school. And uh, their neighbors said, yeah, my, our daughter's three best friends in seventh grade identify as bisexual. And that, as, as a Christian and as a conservative, that's just breathtaking. And again, this this was happening not in a liberal place, but in a, a Texas city. So mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's this lots of stuff going on in the culture now, and we Christians we have to live in the world. I'm not talking about you know going out to build a compound out in the in the hinterlands and wait for the end of the world. That's not my calling. I don't believe that's a calling of most people. And we're not even called to the monastery, but we are called to a much more disciplined and intentional and prayerful form of living in community. So we can be for the world who Christ asks us to be. If we don't have this within ourselves and within our own communities, how are we ever going to bring that light of Christ to the public schools and to the public square? Mm-hmm. Well, one critique that we haven't spent a whole lot of time on is your critique of right-wing American politics. And you say that they've spent so much effort on corporate capitalist economics and neglected so much the society and the family. And... Basically, you say that, you know, the long-assumed alliance between multinational corporations and conservatism has given way to a sort of corporate coalition that throws its weight around, but does so on the side of the late-game sexual revolution. And, of course, you know, the recent uh, events in my own home state of Indiana have revealed this, you know, as starkly as anything. So I'm going to be a booger here at the end of our interview and propose to you this dream scenario of mine is there a future for a heavyweight tag team of social conservatives and old left working family socialism <laughs> you know i i would be open to it i i think that that, <laughs> that is uh i i'm not kidding uh i this is catholic social teaching mm-hmm. the idea that we need to be economically more uh quote-unquote liberal in the sense of of keeping the common good, not that that the common good is not just the sum of all individual goods, but it means something, but also socially conservative. I, we look at, at, you talked about Indiana and what happened there. This was for me, the catalyst for the book, the Benedict option, Mm -hmm. um, the Indiana religious freedom restoration act debacle, um, which happened in 2015. Uh, I don't want to rehearse the whole thing for, for your, your listeners, but when the state of Indiana tried to pass a state version of the federal RIFRA, RFRA, um, big business came down on the state of Indiana like a ton of bricks. Um, Apple and other big corporations threatened to punish the state economically if it did this. And all it would have done would, would have been to have, give, to have given a religiously a religious defense in case of a, of a suit for discrimination. It didn't mean that the religious... A defendant would win. It just meant that they had a defense. Right. And I want to repeat that, Rod, just real quick. The text of the law says that if a defendant invoked the First Amendment, the judge could rule it invalid. I mean, that's right in the text of the law. Yeah. So the the state withdrew it under pressure. And um, this was a law that, again, we have it at the national level, but even in the state of Indiana, not a particularly liberal place. They couldn't do this without major corporations threatening to come down on them. And it happened a week or so later in Arkansas. What this meant was, this is a real Rubicon, Nathan, because this was the first time big business had gotten involved in the culture war, and it did so in a big way against traditional values, traditional Christianity. That's when my phone started ringing off the hook with Christians saying, you know, all this stuff that you've been saying about the Benedict Option over the years, I get it now. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I think everything that's happened since then, you know, we, we had a Burgerfeld three months later, which constitutionalized right to same-sex marriage. That ship has sailed. You know, conservative Christians are never going to turn that back. We need to prepare ourselves in our communities and in our hearts 
for the loss of our livelihoods, for the loss of work, for the loss of social status, because we are going to be seen, we are seen and will increasingly be seen as racist if we hold to what the gospel teaches us and the Bible teaches us about the purposes of human sexuality. Now, the Republican Party is fairly useless on this stuff. I remember going to Washington, D.C. in October of 2015, met with a group of uh, conservative uh, legislative staffers on both the House and the Senate side. All of them are Christian. And I said, look, we, we have a burger fell now. We know about the ongoing challenges to religious liberty. What is the Republican Party prepared to do to protect the religious liberty of Christians in this post burgerfell moment? Silence. Nothing. <laughs> they said they tax cuts. Do any... What's that? <laughs> they said tax cuts. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all they care about. And they said that we don't want to be called bigots. But look, mm-hmm. now we have, we have Donald Trump now as the president. I didn't see that coming. A lot of people didn't see that coming. And I think a lot of Christians, I know a lot of Christians voted for Trump because it, they thought he would at least be better on religious liberty. And I certainly hope, hope he will be. But Christians who place their hope in Donald Trump and the Republican Party to turn back this tide of de-Christianization, that's, that's just foolish. It's, even if Donald Trump were a saint, which he certainly isn't, even if he were a saint, this sort of he could not hold back the tide that has been building and building and building for centuries. Um, I think that the best thing for us to do now, yes, stay involved in voting, vote for president, advocate for your issues, especially religious liberty. But it's far more important to get involved at the local level and build up your community locally, not only in your church, but in the community around you with your neighbors who might not even be Christian, uh, because this is where the resilience is going to take place. If we have some sort of economic collapse nationwide, which could happen, um, we're going to need each other locally. A lot of places, we don't have each other. So take advantage of this opportunity now to build those networks up and to uh, be prepared to, to help each other when, when Christians have their businesses taken away, like Baron L. Stutzman, the florist in, in Washington, is having done, and when there are other forms of job loss and uh, ostracization uh, later, because this is absolutely coming. You talk to uh, lawyers and people active in religious liberty circles, they'll tell you this is coming, and pastors are not preparing their flocks for what's ahead. All right. Well, Rod, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about Benedict, education, the end of Christendom, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head for the door? Well, I want them to have hope, and I'll I'll tell you that there is hope that is embodied. I have seen people living in Christian community over the course of researching this book are doing a tremendous job of it. They're not reproducing utopia because the last utopia ended when Adam and Eve got kicked out of Eden. But they're doing a really good job, and they're living in joy. Joy is the most important thing. We're facing a pretty frightening world, but if we know who we are in the Lord, uh, we have no reason not to be joyful. And I want to close with this anecdote from Norcia, the hometown of St. Benedict where there is a monastery, or was a monastery, until last uh, summer and October, when the biggest earthquake to hit Italy in 30 years struck just north of Benedict's hometown. Uh, The first earthquake hit at the end of August of last summer, and it left the monastery and their basilica, their medieval basilica, standing, but the engineers said, it might not be safe for you to stay here. So the monks moved just outside the city to live on a hillside in tents and still do their daily prayers and all their services. Um, in October, one morning in October, well, in the middle of the night, this devastating earthquake hit. It knocked the basilica down. The entire basilica fell to the ground in a pile of rubble, and with it, most of the monastery. Those monks survived uh, and are there for the rebuilding because they heated the early mornings and got outside the city, set up their tents overlooking the city so they could still serve the city and, and, and to do their daily prayers. Uh, the monks today, look, as Benedictine monks, look down at the rubble of their basilica and their monastery and see in that a symbol for the church and for Christianity in the West today. But they, they know that the only thing to do now to go back and try to rebuild because they have built the cathedral, a solid rock in their hearts, 
by, by bringing the gospel into not only into their, their hearts and minds through memorization and through praying the gospel and the psalms out, but by the, the orderly ways they have lived to serve God and to serve each other in community. And that's the only way there's going to be any kind of rebuilding in the United States and in Europe uh, when this post-Christian night is over. We want this, the, the gospel to be there to, uh, to reinvigorate and, and bring the light back to culture when the day comes, back to our civilization, when the day comes when people want to hear it again. Rod Dreher, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening into our conversation. I want to remind you that on March 16th at 6 o'clock Eastern, you'll be able to either visit the Plows event or you'll be able to live stream it on Facebook. And again, watch The Christian Humanist on Facebook and on ChristianHumanist.org for further announcements on that. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.